Oh, I always feel as though I have to take a little breath before a platform that is primarily about race and racism, partly because those topics continue to be difficult to talk about in America. And they are platform, the platform topics where I worry most about the experience that people have of what I say, partly because the topic is so huge that I will inevitably speak about only a tiny portion of it leaving out realities and experiences that are integral to the overall understanding. You're glad for that, I think, since you don't want to be here for the next week and a half uh, to uh, fully address the topic. This time, that little portion that I'm talking about is about my own experience of learning about and struggling with the concept of white identity. Before I go any further, I want to emphasize something that I just said, my own experience of white identity. I'll be talking about my ongoing experience with whiteness and about my experience raising white children. And I want to be really clear that this congregation includes, among our members and among our visitors and among our friends, people with a variety of identities. We have other white people who are raising white children. We have white people raising children of color. We have people of color raising children of color. We have multiracial and multi-ethnic families. We have plenty of people who are not raising children at all, actually. We have people in interracial relationships and with significant cross-cultural friendships and people who hold within themselves a multitude of identities, all vital to their sense of self. And within all of those identities that we have here at West, we have just as many experiences about them. I hope that what I will explore as part of my own journey will help with yours, however different it might be. All that said, and not said, hopefully, too quickly, like the disclaimers at car commercials, where they don't really want you to listen to the fine print, but said with care and thought because it's important to me that you hear it. All that said, I am a white woman with two white children. And so today I want to talk about what that means to me and what I've tried to learn about it. I bring up the, the white children aspect because although I have been white for actually my whole life, I, I've really only been doing anti-racism work for the last 10 years or so. And in that time, I've learned about the concept of white privilege, which I'll explain a little bit later on, and really about sort of whiteness as a thing, you know, what that is to be white. But it's become especially important to me. It's really come out of sort of a, a cerebral understanding and, and into my heart, located deeply in my own experience as a parent to my two daughters. It came up for me especially um, a couple of years ago. So my oldest daughter just turned five. So she was, I think, three, maybe four. When I got a book, we had a, a listen to children's music all the time, and we had a a children's song about Rosa Parks, which we loved to sing together, and I wanted her to know more of that story. And so I went online and I looked for a book, and I found one. You, some of you may have seen it or may have it. 
um, that Faith Ringgold uh, wrote and did the illustrations for that kind of quilting look, it's quite beautiful, about the Rosa Parks story. And so I ordered it, I brought it home, and I read it to my daughter. And the first thing I learned is that it's maybe better to, um, to look through those books yourself before ordering from Amazon, or at least to try to look at the age appropriateness, because I had to uh, really not even paraphrase. I, I pretty much skipped the, the lynching part for my four-year-old. But, but I still found in there elements of the story that I thought were so important for her to hear, so important for her to know. And so we went through this beautiful story about Rosa Parks, and we went through some of the hard pieces of that story. We especially went through the piece about the KKK and their involvement. And, um, and as I talked with her about the story and read the story to her, and she wanted it a couple of nights in a row. You know, it was an important story to her, and I was glad for that. As we, as we talked about it, eventually she turned to me and she said, well, I don't want to be white anymore. The white people are all mean. And I realized I needed to be conscious about how I raised my child around white identity. That was the moment when it came home to me that I needed to be clear in myself and clear in how I talk to my children about what it means to be white. So the first question that I have been grappling with is, is really just that, what is white identity? What does it mean to be white? Is that even a real thing? Or maybe to go back one, at the heart of that, is race a real thing? Or is it simply a social construct? Is it a real thing or a social construct? I would say the answer is yes. Let's start with the second yes first, the idea of race as a social construct. You know, I said I've been doing anti-racism work for just about 10 years now, and so it's recent enough in my own knowledge base, that idea of race as a social construct, that I can remember learning about it. I can remember thinking, no, wait, that can't be right. That's not, is that really it? And then sort of delving a little deeper and learning a little bit more. And it's one of the things that I actually find so rewarding about anti-racism work. You know, for many of us as adults, we went to school some time ago. We don't have the opportunity to, to have those moments of, you know, that paradigm shift. And that's something that I found in anti-racism work that I've done myself, that it's given me the opportunity for, oh, moments when everything has just shifted for me about how I see the world. So that's a, a particular joy of the work to me. So I remember learning that concept of race as a social construct. And the good thing is that even since I learned about it, there are more and more recent resources for us to explore it. There was a great exhibit, which I know some of you have been to. It was at the Smithsonian uh, last year, I think, or two years ago. And, and it travels all around the country. You can actually access it online as well through understandingrace.org. And I want to tell you that all the resources that I mentioned today, I have already put up on my blog. I always say I'm going to do it later, and then I literally never do. And so this time I was smart, and I put it up last night, so you can go to my blog and click through to some of these links and look at the books I'm talking about. So Understanding Race is the name of this exhibit that's traveling the country that's really trying to get across three key points of learning. And I want to share them with you today, and I'll share them in their language. 
um, because I think that it's clear and, and understandable. The first is, and I'm quoting, race is a recent human invention, a concept that was superimposed on existing patterns of human biological and cultural variation to create and maintain power and privilege. So a recent human invention created to, to create and maintain power and privilege. Then the second piece of learning is that race is about culture, not biology. That race is the partitioning of people into groups using biological and cultural characteristics. And that humans are actually more alike than they are different. Some of us have interacted with that concept, the, the, the similarities um, among humanity, that sort of 99% of us is the same, you know, of our DNA is all exactly the same. So we've, we've interacted with that in different ways, but I like the way they put that. It's about culture, not biology. And then the third piece is race and racism are embedded in our institutions and everyday life. So I want to just return to that first one because that's the piece that I've been kind of picking apart as I think about my own white identity. Race as a social construct specifically created to maintain power and privilege. And there's a lot of evidence for that idea. You know, if you look back at historical data, even just over the last 100 years and certainly in the last 200 and 300 years in America, you see a huge variation in who is considered white over time. That's changed dramatically. Different immigrant groups will come in and be considered not white, and then they will be considered white. Um, there are legal cases in which people argue whether a certain person is white or not and base it on different characteristics, whether it's about the color of their skin or no. In this case, it's about the shape of their nose. No, in this case. So as different, different groups are legally judged um, white or not white. Um, and that whole concept of, of whiteness, of someone being white and not being, for instance, English, um, really started um, in America during the time uh, when Africans were, um, were brought over enslaved. And, and so that idea of being white was to create a clear distinction so that power and control could be, could be exercised. Um, right? That was the, the first identification of, of whiteness being a thing. It's, um, it's eye-opening, I think, to read those legal court cases and to read some of what's been in popular media as well over time. And it's also painful to read for me. And I think in many ways, at least speaking personally, that idea of race as a social construct used, created to maintain power and privilege, it's a hard pill to swallow for white folks. It, it's been hard for me to interact with and, and believe that and really come to understand it deeply. Because for me, at least, it increases my own experience of culpability in the racist system. You know, I can't pretend that I'm just a, a white person and there's lots of races and we're all kind of trying to figure out what to do with each other and, and how to deal with that. Suddenly, I'm aware of the idea of whiteness this idea of who I am, of my identity, as, as being totally tied up with privilege and power. That that whole idea only exists as a way to maintain privilege and power in the world. So I think, you know, once I kind of figured that out and had this aha moment, and it took a while, it wasn't, it wasn't really a moment so much as months and different trainings and thinking about it, I think one of my first responses really was, oh, well, who wants to be white? And, and that's, that was my daughter's response in some ways as she read that Rosa Parks book. You know, 
If being white is an identity that was created to maintain power and privilege, do I even want to claim that as part of my identity? What does that mean? I think something I experienced and, and that a lot of white folks experience as well is, is feeling as though they they've, have no culture, that being white means sort of not being something um, uh, more interesting. Um, and there's a, there's a reality around that experience, right? Because as some of those immigrant groups came in, particularly from Europe, as they were originally labeled not white, we're talking about um, Irish folks, Italian folks, folks from many different countries, as they were originally labeled white, the, the transition to becoming white meant giving up a lot of the, um, the characteristics that, that made them seem different from standard white, uh, so sort of British uh, Protestant culture. Right. And so there is a loss and a giving up that people engaged in, um, sometimes consciously, as they, as they tried to assimilate into the standard white culture. I think the piece that's not quite right about that loss of culture is that, you know, saying you have no culture is like saying you have no accent. Nobody really has no accent. You just think that your accent is the standard accent. And so saying you have no culture is saying that your culture, and I think this is true in America, that white culture is the standard culture. That it's, it's really no culture, but, but in fact what you're saying is it's so standard that we don't even have to notice it. We don't even have to say it's a, a thing. right? And then I think a, another phase that I went through and that, that I still have to get myself kind of booted out of every once in a while is that experience that I, that I, that I mentioned that I referred to of, of white guilt. Who, well, who wants to be white? This just sounds terrible. I think one of the most helpful things that I heard during my early anti-racism work was that feeling guilty as a white person was really just a way of being stuck and not doing anything about it. It gave me the motivation I needed you might say that kind of kick in the pants I needed. And in some ways, it gave me the offer of grace that I needed to be able to let go of that guilt and to move forward with anti-racism work, to move forward constructing a different identity for myself. But I think it's a legitimate question, right? If being white is really a socially constructed thing created to maintain power and privilege, then why not just sort of stop being it? You know, why don't, I, why don't I say I'm a human woman or maybe a Euro-American woman or, you know, something along those lines? I think that that impulse, that draw is close to the concept of colorblindness, which is um, certainly part of how I was raised, I think. And, and there's a lot of good intentions behind the concept of colorblindness, that we're all the same, that I don't notice anybody's colors. I don't notice what race is assigned to them or what race they identify with. Right? It honors the similarities that people share. But what it doesn't honor, and this is the key for me, I think, what it doesn't honor is the real lived experience of race. And that's why my answer to the question, is race a social construct or is race a real thing, is yes, both of those. Because it may indeed, it is a social construct and also it is a lived reality in our society. People are assigned races, they identify with a particular race, and how they experience the world and how the world experiences them is very different depending on how their race is perceived or identified or assigned. And so part of identifying as white for me is about acknowledging the privilege that I carry. It's about acknowledging the experience that I have of the world and the experience that the world has of me because I'm white. 
I can't give up that privilege in many ways, but it's important for me to notice it. And, it's, and that noticing is part of how I can dismantle the system that assigns it to me. I think actually that noticing and identifying whiteness and white privilege for many white folks, and certainly for me, can be a really helpful way to understand and to see systemic or institutional racism. And when we talk about racism in American society now, you know, we're in a place where, where particularly in the part of the country that we live in, particularly in the towns that many of us live in, we don't see as many instances of overt personal racism. So that's, that's like somebody saying something racist right to you, you know, or you overhear them saying it right, right in front of you. Within mainstream American society, that is now less usual. And so the instances of racism that we see can be harder to see, you know, because they're embedded in the system. They're just, sometimes you talk about it just the just below the water. There's a lot of iceberg below the water, even though we don't see that tip so much anymore. And so it can be hard to identify those elements of racism. And I think looking at whiteness and at white privilege is actually a way to help us see, we can see what I get. I can see what I get because I'm white, which helps me to see the way racism works within the system. Because if I'm getting it because I'm white, then somebody's not getting it because they're a person of color, right? So some of, those, um, some of those privileges that we can identify as white privilege, and again, there's a resource on my blog to a great and sort of um, classic essay about the white privilege backpack that talks about all of, all of the privileges we experience, just a few of them. I am not followed in stores when I go into stores to shop. Nobody follows me around wondering if I'm going to shoplift. I'm not asked for multiple IDs when I go places, and actually... Um, Actually, I get by with fewer IDs than are required. When I applied for my uh, driver's license, um, I did not have the proper identification with me. Um, but, you know, the person who was uh, seeing me through in upstate New York said that it's okay, it's fine. It's, this one will we'll do just fine. I see people that look like me in the major media all the time. I can turn on any television show and there's going to be somebody that looks like me, and my children will experience that as well. In movies and in TV and major media outlets and books, I can be assured that my race will be represented, that I'll see folks um, and positive, positive um, depictions of my race as well. And then I think one of the biggest pieces of white privilege, one of the ones that, that I feel most strongly we actually can turn around, is that as a white person, I can actually ignore race and racism if I'd like to. I can find myself in settings that are almost entirely people of my race or entirely people of my race. And so I can sort of say, oh, race and racism, oh, I'm so sad if that happens out there somewhere, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. So that's this huge privilege that I carry. I want to note that not all white people experience these privileges in the same way. You know, there's a lot around socioeconomic class tied up in it, around educational background, and, and, and all of those pieces. There are a lot of different systems of oppression at work in America, and I want to acknowledge that because I think sometimes folks say, well, well, that's not true for me, and I'm a white person. But all white people experience some of these privileges. And I think if you go to that essay and look at the longer list, you'll see, you'll begin to identify some of those pieces that we all experience. So as an anti-racist white parent, or maybe more accurately as a white parent who tries to be anti-racist, who's on that anti-racist journey, 
It's important to me that my children come to understand white privilege, to understand what that means in their lives, and to use it as a way to see systemic racism in the world around us. And it's especially important that, as it's developmentally appropriate for them, that they say no thank you to the white privilege of getting to ignore race and racism. That that's just not an option in our family. We don't want that privilege, and that's one that we can give back. That's one that I can say, mm, I'm not going to create a life where I get to ignore what race and racism means in America. There are a lot of great tools out there that I've found, um, and I have been especially loving a book called What If All the Kids Are White? It's by Louise Durbin Sparks and Patricia Ramsey, and it was written by, these are two anti-bias educators um, working in early childhood education, and it was written really to respond to the question, well, I don't know how to do anti-bias or anti-racism work because I work in a setting where all my children are white, and so what would that mean? How, you know, what if all the kids are white? What could you do? This, the book is for early childhood teachers, and it is about children, but um, as with mindfulness meditation, uh, where I recently bought a book that's specifically for children, except that I'm reading it, um, I think that's about my level. <laughs> so I actually recommend this book to you, whether or not you work with or have children. There are just some excellent, very readable descriptions of racism and white privilege within the book. So, um, so the book talks about forming a positive white identity in white children. And you can imagine my ears perking up because that's exactly the piece that I, that I struggle with for myself and for my children as well. What does it look like to have a positive white identity? And what does it look like to form an anti-racist identity in all children, in white children, in children of color as well? And, and the thing I love about this book is that they make it seem so accessible. And they make it seem like the kinds of things you'd want to teach your children anyway. You'd want your children anyway to learn about the variations within human diversity, about the ways that we are similar and different from each other. Starting with your own race and then looking at other races, you want them to understand those similarities and differences. You want them to learn about fairness. One of the biggest things that they teach in this book is that if you can teach young children the element of fairness, which if anyone, I mean, if you've even, frankly, if you've ever met my daughter, you know, you know that children of that age have actually a pretty high um, uh, awareness of fairness in the world, uh, sometimes a little higher than we would like as parents, um, exactly what's fair and what's not fair and what they want to do about it and how you are supposed to fix it. And so if you just can tap into that childhood desire for fairness and equity in their own world and help them to look for it in the rest of the world, you're halfway there. And then if you can add to that teaching about the concept of empathy, again, something that we know children are born with, the ability to be empathic toward their peers and toward other people. And so as you build on that and as you expand that thinking within children, and I would say within adults as well, you have the foundations of an anti-racist identity. As you teach the application of those skills to racism and to noticing racism, which, side note, kids notice anyway. More and more studies are showing us just how early children are able to identify um, 
uh, in-group and out-group, the racist messages that they get from society. I think parents frequently, and, wh and white parents particularly, I should say, have a, have a sense that, that if, they, um, if they don't talk about it, um, or if they just sort of speak neutrally about people of many races, their children will hear that message, but the reality is they're hearing so many messages from all of society that we need to be actively educating them. We need to be actively educating ourselves and providing them and ourselves with different messages. That's one of the major pieces that I come away with from this book and from other reading I've done about anti-racist parenting and anti-racist education in general. To talk, 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 not to ignore. Just as Mary said so beautifully in the quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. today, we cannot afford to be silent. And in all that talking, to talk to, and this is one of my learnings with my children, to talk to about positive white anti-racist models. Obviously, I need to diversify my um, daughter's book selection a little bit. <laughs> to look for those models which we have in ethical culture, in Unitarian Universalism, in Judaism, models of white anti-racist folks marching in the civil rights movement, models within this congregation, a congregation which was integrated at its founding in 1943 um, at a time when it was very difficult to find integrated meeting spaces in D.C. And so they traveled from home to home looking for spaces where they could meet because D.C. was a segregated city at that time. And I'm learning even more about the models in our own congregation. Many of us know about Ed Erickson's work within the civil rights movement, but I'm hearing more about George Beecham's work. George was the first leader of this society in the 40s and into the um, early 50s and, um, and worked with Dorothy Height and others in the civil rights movement. So the more that we can lift up those models, the more that I can lift up those models for my children, the more they can begin to see the deeper identity that they might be able to claim, right? The identity of being an anti-racist white person. I was talking with a friend of mine, a colleague who's a Unitarian Universalist minister up in Germantown, Maryland, um, and who did her master's thesis about children and race. And um, she is a white person. And, um, and, I, and I was reading all of this and, and trying to struggle with it. And I said to her, but Megan, her name is Megan Foley. I said, Megan, the thing is, it just still sounds, I, I can't figure out what the positive thing is about being white. What can I claim about that for myself? And she said something that was so helpful. I asked if I could quote, quote it. It was helpful to me. That for her, the positive thing about being white and being white as an anti-racist white person is that it is, and I'm quoting, easiest to change a system from a position of power. That if something is going to change in the racist system in America, it's going to be because the people at the top of the hierarchy want to change it, are willing to change it. And so for her, as an anti-racist white person, she finds that, that experience of positivity in, in the possibility that she has within the system to create change. And that was a gift to me, to see it in that way, to see that with whiteness comes responsibility and opportunity to change the system. Now, to do it, and I, and I always say when I talk about anti-racist white people that, um, that the leaders in 
in anti-racism work and the leaders in the civil rights movement have been people of color um, across the board. And, and that as an anti-racist white person, much of what I find my role is to listen to act in solidarity, it's not to come in and save, right? So being sort of that idea of having the opportunity to change the system because of my place in the system doesn't mean that I get to come in and change the system in such a way that suits me because then it doesn't really sound like much of a change in the system, you know? But for me, within my place at the system, to come in and say, I want to work in solidarity with my colleagues of color and my friends of color and with people and communities of color throughout the country, I want to figure out a way to give up some of the white privilege because it's a giving up, right, so that the system can change. That is what feels like an opportunity to me. Frankly, that is where it gets religious for me. We talked last week about belief, about believing in possibility, and especially about believing in a world that we can just barely see, or that sometimes we can't even see at all, but that we have to believe is out there, that we have to believe exists, and that we have to believe that we can make happen. And for me, that that's the deepest joy at the heart of anti-racism work. It's the deepest joy at the heart of struggling with white identity for myself and for my children. It's the deepest joy of being able to tentatively and, and with nervousness to claim myself as an anti-racist person somewhere on that anti-racist journey, that we have the opportunity to create a new world, a new paradigm, that that learning that I find, you know, that moment I mentioned where I learned something new and everything shifts for me, that it could, it just might shift for the whole world. And that, to me, is the reason why this is work about belief as well. Because it's belief in a world of wholeness, a world where, where we really can look out and, and mostly see the similarities. Where we can get to a place to a place where an anti-racist identity is the most important identity. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. And for that reason, it's important for me to talk about whiteness with my children and with myself, to talk about the privilege that that carries, to learn more about it. And boy, I learn every time I open a book or have a conversation or go to a training. But I do it because I have a hope that that world really could come to pass someday. So I invite you, I guess, really just to hope with me, to keep the faith with me, to build that world with me, to learn and read and have conversations and go to trainings, to struggle with your own identity, whatever that is, and however many you carry within you, and to do it as part of this community so that we can be a place where those identities are real and honored and where, too, we see how similar we are and what we carry in common and that part of what we carry in common is the hope for that dream, for that world to be one day. <laughs>